0: Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica.
1: I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are in a series right now that is looking at what the uh what what it means to do justice not just to have learned about it from biblical voices but what does it mean to practice justice and last time we were talking about what the old testament and hebrew scriptures say about economic justice so uh, where's our jumping off point for today sarah
2: so today we're still talking about economic justice but now we're going to talk about it from the standpoint of the new testament so what are some examples from the New Testament that talk about economic justice? What did that look like for them? And can we apply those same principles to our lives now? What would be positive? What would be negative about that? Um, so what are some of the ways that the New Testament encourages us as followers of Christ to practice economic justice?
0: When I hear about economic justice in the New Testament, one of the first things that comes to mind, and I'm sure it might be the same for for you all, is the beginning uh, chapters of Acts, where okay. you know the, the the early disciples, the early followers of the way, are all living together, sharing everything. Uh, they're basically in what today's chair would be in a communist commune, um, which sounds really odd to our ears. Um, you know, we fought a war against the communists. Not that long ago, um, but you know, the idea of sharing everything and having everything in common um, is appealing to my ears in some ways.
1: And and it may be worth saying at this point that on the on the one hand, while there was never a point when uh, in in the Book of Acts at least where Christians controlled the government and, and owned all the like factories and farms and things like that, like happened in say Marxist countries like uh, Soviet Union or in, in um, communist China or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, the, the mention of the community sharing all they had um, gets mentioned a couple of places in the book of Acts. It's always located in Jerusalem. There's no evidence that it was became a, a required model for other, uh, communities other disciple communities, but it does get mentioned a couple of times with, with good press from Luke, the narrator that Luke doesn't say it and it's like, Oh, and what a terrible idea it was. But he sort of says like, and look, everybody shared and that's how they guaranteed that nobody went hungry in the, in the Mm -hmm. disciple community. Um, and so Luke sees that maybe not as being mandatory, but sees it as like, uh, I don't know, something that was laudable about the early Christian community in Jerusalem. Maybe.
0: It's something that worked for that place in that time, you know.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of saying. It would
0: work in other places and other times, Luke doesn't tell us. You know, maybe he didn't experience it anywhere else, but it seemed to work with those disciples in Jerusalem.
1: Right. And maybe in in fairness, too, um, while we don't get any other mentions in the book of Acts about um, a full-blown, we're all going to sell our property and and use the – funds from sales to feed each other. There is in later in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, the idea of taking up a collection for the people in Jerusalem. When there came to be a famine in Jerusalem, um, Paul spends a lot of his letters uh, when he's writing to other churches in the Gentile world, asking them for financial support for people who live nowhere near them in the, the Christian community in Jerusalem. And again, Paul doesn't see that as a, um, opposed to the gospel or as something that's that's inappropriate. He says, part of what we do is we belong to each other and we have an obligation to take care of one another. That's more than just if you got a few spare bucks for charity, you can. Paul lays pretty heavily like this is what we do as Christians.
0: Well, that sounds very much, at least for me in the Methodist world, as our uh, connectional apportionments. And I think you all have something similar to that where every church um, pay so much money to our conference and then every conference pays so much money to every general conference so that we can support one another across the globe. Um, so right. you know, my folks in Marion Center can be supporting ministries in Zimbabwe or in South Korea or, you know, in various countries in Europe without ever necessarily sending money directly to those places.
1: Right, right, right. And maybe we could highlight, too, that in in the Book of Acts and in in Paul's letters, when you're talking about that collection for um, the the community in Jerusalem, it wasn't primarily for, like, building church buildings. I mean, sometimes we think about giving to the church. Oh, that will help build a church building somewhere or train future pastors. And while those are all laudable, delightful things, in the Book of Acts and in Paul's letters, this is we've got neighbors who are going hungry because there's a famine there. Mm-hmm. We need to send money so they can buy food because the prices have gone so high because of the famine um, that there's even more than just, this is a, a this is a, for brick and mortar church buildings. This is again, so that people we will never meet this side of glory get to eat. And that seems again, a, a pretty important idea, not just for the book of Acts, but for Paul's letters too.
2: I think it's also important to mention that There have been Christian communities who have tried communal living, like intentional communal living to look more like uh, like the Book of Acts than, um, you know, how they lived rather than how most Christians live today. Um, You know, just thinking about American history, which isn't very long. Um, You know, we haven't been a nation for very long in the grand scheme of things. Um, You know, there were the Shakers. There were the um, Monococ colonies in Iowa. There, um, you know, I think early, a couple of early Quaker communities lived as communes. Um, Sure. And, you know, likewise, there are groups of individuals who may or may not be Christians who still try to live in communes today. Um, I think we have a, a bad idea in our head like that, that that, that they're all hippies because that was a very like hippie thing to do back in the 1960s. Um, but right. yeah, there are definitely groups of people today who try that communal living where everything goes in the common pot. We all work together to meet our goals Um, You know, making sure there's food on the table, a roof over our heads, uh, clothes on our backs. You know, for sure, I don't think that that's a way to get to get rich because you're all working together and you might not have a whole lot of individual possessions. But I think that that might be that might be okay. It just would look very different than how we're living now in a very individualistic society.
1: Yeah, I think there are other examples that come to mind, too, that maybe flesh out that picture, because you make a good point that people maybe hear the idea of, of communal style living and assume that's just the hippies in the 1960s kind of a thing. But like in in um, Sumter, Georgia, is Quinonea Co- Farm, which was founded in the 40s by Clarence Jordan and I think a handful of other folks that uh, is, is – was, was created as, as that kind of community farm where people who live there, they share the labor, they share the work. There's that like being very close to the earth and, um, being involved in all in the, in the labor. Um, and it allows them to do service and outreach to other places as well. And also, um, it, it puts them close to, how and where they get their food from. That, that's still an operating community in the United States now. And in a way, I also think too, that throughout Christian history, a lot of the monastic movement had feels of that kind of communitarian mm-hmm. kind of approach. You know, if, if, um, may, maybe not like in the, in the big urban centers when they became centers of power in medieval Europe, but like I think about like, um, uh, monastic communities, even today, like in, in Taizé, France, or uh, large communities, where the idea is to, to live communally for the sake of caring for either um, those who are developmentally disabled or those who have other special needs, or um, simply to create a community where we all share the labor. And yeah, it would be farming, it would be growing things, it would be we all together work together to make the the wine or the you know to harvest the wheat or whatever. Um, and the, a, a surprising amount of Christian history has had those kind of communities where people live together and shared work, and whether they said it out loud or not, that it was, oh, because this is how things happen in the New Testament, there seems to be at least a connecting point there.
0: And it's those communities today, like in the midst of, you know, this virus and everything, where we're shut off from the world, and and those of us that are used to just going to the grocery store at at a whim to get what we need, it's those communities today that are, I'm sure, thriving. I mean, obviously, I know Mm -hmm. of a couple in Kentucky, you know, a monastery and a convent that kind of live that way and obviously not allowed to travel down there to see them right now, but I'm sure the monks are having no issues because they're used to living that way.
1: Right, right, right. And it, it's funny when we were talking about um creation and justice a couple of episodes ago, one of the things I remember in our conversation was like the, the value of that lost connection. A lot of us have between us and where mm-hmm. our food comes from and things like the value of, creating the time and the space to garden, even if it's just your kitchen garden, you know, that you're not looking to export it and make a profit, but just enough for, for you and your family. There's value in appreciating the labor that goes into growing food and an appreciation for the people who do that work, but also it sort of puts us back in touch with the rhythms of creation as well, that this might be one of those connecting points between economic justice and um creation justice the idea that part of what we're made for as the scriptures tell it is this this not being disconnected from creation but that there can be value in me growing food or knowing how to and sharing it with other people around me um and we discover there's there's joy to be had there's something good to be had just in working with other people in good honest work that you know that that makes you sweat and makes you tired at the end of it um there's something valuable that that a lot of our contemporary culture has lost because we, we don't do that. And we don't know where mm-hmm. our food comes from or for that matter, what's gone into it.
2: I, I would also imagine that it would radically change our relationships. If we yeah. lived in a more communal setting. Um, because I know that a huge part of American culture is shifting right now because young people are not staying close to where they grew up. They're moving away for better, for different and better, possibly better job opportunities. So the model that we used to have way back when of like your family unit would be like all pretty much living in the same town, you know, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, you know, we don't really have that in the same way anymore. Um, So when they say things like it takes a village to raise, or it takes a village to raise a child, You know, who are our villages? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for example, my husband and I, we've lived here for three years now. Um, We have two young children. Our closest, their closest set of grandparents are four and a half hours away. You know, so for, for them, a lot of the people that they, you know, the relationships that they are building within the church communities is in some ways closer than family and in other ways are not because my parishioners aren't coming over on a Friday evening to hang out with the boys for a couple hours so that my husband and I can go on a date. Like that's not the type of relationship we currently have with any parishioners. So, you know, I imagine that in a more communal situation Mm -hmm. um, that those relationships would exist in a different way. You know, my my boys would have a more village like setting, whereas right now we're kind of an island with mom and dad, the two boys, and then you know they also have like their daycare teachers and friends, which they don't have at the moment because we're in the middle of a <clears throat> pandemic. Right. But yeah, I imagine that, 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 that would change relationships.
1: That 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 to me makes an. Am- important point that sometimes we imagine that this current era we're living in where sort of everything is built around the nuclear family of 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and a dog really is the outlier and isn't how things have been for most of human history, certainly for most of Christian history that from for much of the last 2000 years, um, communities have, have included multiple generations so that there was already a sense of we care about more than just the nuclear family, but there's extended family who are part of the picture. And that the the picture we get in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is that the church sort of became that sort of fictive family, that found family, that we weren't bound by biology necessarily, but that we are connected to each other and took care of one another's needs even though we didn't have biological ties to each other. Um, and it seems to me like that's, that's a really, really strong point throughout the New Testament, that this, this new thing called church um, was inclusive of uh, different nationalities and ethnic groups and it wasn't just Jewish and Gentile and it wasn't just uh, men and it wasn't just a one economic class but that people were brought together and they treated their belonging like you are now family for each other um, and that that was reflected not just like in a sort of a sentimental way like oh I feel nice that I get to call you brother or sister so and so but that, that there was a, a shared economics too we look out for each other because we are part of this this found family
2: Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, that all of that. <laughs>
1: um, th- that that suggests, then, to me, and I, this maybe circles back to uh, a point that Erica had made earlier: that when when the early chapters of ACT do talk about people sharing in, in a communitarian kind of a way, um, and again, maybe communitarian is better than communist because there isn't a state mandated ownership of everything, but that um, that uh, th- this this was offered as a Model and that there was something of this. This worked in so many ways for the kind of community where people were in um, Jerusalem because they were relatively closely geographically to each other. It was all in one city. It was easy for them to live and to share relatively quickly. Um, And in a in an era like ours where people are spread out more, uh, that that's harder to pull off. And where people do live close together, like say uh, a city, you don't have the the land space for farming quite as easily. Where where you can't do the we're all going to work together and we're all going to raise wheat together or something like that, that like the, the monastic communities in, in earlier history had, they could all be in one place, but then they had the fields out back where they could actually grow their own food together. And we, we don't have that quite same, that, that possibility.
0: But is there a way to create that kind of community, maybe without, you know, not necessarily sharing the food or growing the food, but is there, is there a way to create that kind of community feel even when we don't live just down the road from each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe there are little ways that it, that it takes a toehold and you see what develops organically. But like, I even think there, there are moments when I look at at the the congregations where I serve, when we actually get to be in the church buildings, which again, it's memory now I'm leaning on. Um, but, uh, like when, when families with with young kids, sometimes halfway through the service will go, I'll see them sitting with somebody else in the church who aren't their relatives, but they're just people who care about them. And they've just sort of spontaneously gone and sat with these people that they, they treat like Grammys and paps, uh, as, as extra family members. They're these sort of glimmers of like, that's the kind of community that we're after, where it's not like, no, we only, I only take care of the people who are biologically related to me, but, um, no, we, we, we all take care of each other, whether it's relatively small stakes like 20 minutes during the fidgety time of the service on Sunday, maybe to, to bigger things. But, but that those kind of moments give me that kind of hope that, yeah, we could create those genuine kind of communities together, even though we don't live in first century Jerusalem. Where do you in your, in your ministries or in your world see those possibilities or those like seeds of community?
0: So in this time of separation to try to keep a pulse on my congregation, um, I have split up our, our regular attenders into a phone tree and given them to five leaders, um, five of my key leaders from the church and said, you know, every week if you can touch base with the, with the people on your list and then if there are any needs or any any concerns, anything, let me know. But then that way we're making connections with one another since we can't physically be together in a building, um, we're still at least making some sort of touch point connection. Because uh, I can't call all my people in one week. Um, I can't call all my people necessarily in two weeks, you know. Um, but in, in when I split up that, that phone tree, I tried to give people folks that they don't normally sit next to or talk to on Sunday morning to help kind of build that community connection.
2: So uh, previously, I lived in Iowa, which uh, in in a very small farming community. And one of the ways that I saw them building community um, and like that taking care of each other is during the growing season, they had they just set up a table in the back of the narthex. And on Sunday mornings, when we all gathered together, people would bring in their produce from their garden yeah. and put it on the table. And then you, you left stuff and you could take stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like, Oh, you had to leave stuff in order to take something, but rather like the expectation was here is all of this produce. Help yourself. Like take what you need, leave what you don't. And, um, you know, cause like some people would have a, have a lot of tomatoes and then other people would have a lot of sweet corn mm-hmm. and then other people would have zucchini. And, um, but, oh, maybe Mrs. So-and-so doesn't have zucchini in her garden. Mm-hmm. Like something happened to her plant or she just didn't plant it this year. She could go ahead and take zucchini
1: yeah the the churches I serve have done those kind of things too whether with like garden produce or baked goods too and mm-hmm. again it feels like it's it's a it's a it's a glimmer it's like a seed because i i get it nobody's gonna get th- their whole weekly grocery list from i'm hoping that someone will leave a zucchini at the church but there are there are signs or there i'm mm-hmm. i'm gonna go like quasi sacramental and it, like there's this image of community that that it's it's not just about the zucchini but it's about the zucchini you know and and mm-hmm. those, those when you see those moments um and you see people bring things or they they uh, take something and you know that there's no guilt or no fear of oh i don't want to take anything because someone will think i'm needy but no i'm i I really like zucchini and i could use one there's something beautiful about that there's something that to me feels very much like an economics of grace
2: yes and one particular sunday it was it was in particular about zucchini it, the um the person who planted too much zucchini and um couldn't make it to church one sunday to like drop off the load of zucchini to try to get other people to take it and but they knew that the zucchini was going to go bad soon so they dropped it off at another parishioner's house who makes really good zucchini bread and that <laughs> parishioner all of that zucchini, made it into zucchini bread. And then I think there was almost enough bread for everybody to take, like every family to take a loaf of zucchini bread home.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I wonder too, we we all live in parts of Western Pennsylvania where um, we aren't too, too far from Amish communities. And I wonder if there are things we could learn from Amish communities and farms that are around them enough like the the way where when there's a job that needs to be done, other families just show up because they know so-and-so is going to need help with this harvest or so-and-so's, you know, barn collapses and people just show up to help because they know they're all in the same boat of, we know what it's like. We, it hasn't happened to me yet, but it could. And I want to be there for a neighbor. There's been enough times over the years where I've heard those kind of stories, both in the Amish community and, and outside of it from others who do farm, um, where like, it's just sort of a, uh, it gets ingrained in you. Like, this is, this is what we do. And that's so different from times in my life when I lived in more suburban or urban places where you didn't look too closely at your neighbor because they'd think that you were giving them a weird look. (laughs) Like there's just a neighborliness um, when you are all vulnerable to your barn collapse or a a harvest not working that um, maybe there are ways we could take cues from that without necessarily having to go full Amish. (laughs)
0: Yeah, the power of an almond yeah. barn raising always has fascinated me. You know, how they can in a day they can put up a barn because of the way they pull together as a community. And yet, you know, it takes us, with all the technology and tools that we have, weeks to put up a barn. Now, probably more sophisticated in some ways, but still like when you come together as a community, it's amazing what you can do
1: sure I even think too that and this this is in danger maybe of, of getting a little bit too provocative um, but like part of the difference is when the Amish come together to build a barn for somebody there are not additional layers of middlemen and middlewomen who mm-hmm. are looking to get additional cuts of profits it's just we've got the raw materials now we will all work together and build it and at the end of the day there's not the worry about how how much more money or how much of a cut I get. It's we live in the community. These people's barn will be helpful for me because I will one day get pigs from their, you know, you know, extra produce of pigs or something. There's that sense of we need each other. And that so much of the, the culture and economy we live in is built on assuming you only do things if you will get a profit for it. You only spend your time if you're going to get a cut. You only do something if there will be something in it for you in return immediately. And if you can't chart that or graph that, it's not worth doing Um, And that to me suggests that maybe there's something fundamentally wrong headed about the way we our culture has built our lives.
2: I I think for at least with the Amish uh, barn raising, it also helps that they already know what their role is in those situations. Right. Like they know that, oh, Katie is always going to bring her potato salad is the best potato salad in the community so of course she's going to be bringing a potato salad and oh um linda is going to be bringing an apple pie because she has great apples and so Mm -hmm. she's going to bring the apple pie and so like you know the women all all have figured out like they're going to be providing what foodstuffs because that's what they always do and the men already know that oh yeah these three brothers are all going to be part of the crew that like physically raise this side of the building while these two brothers like are hammering it together. Like, they, they all like, there isn't a whole lot of sitting around and, oh, how do we do this thing? Because right. they already know how to do it. They've already worked that out together of doing this like time and time again
1: and because of that there's there's a sense of like a, a a skill you get by doing it over and over again and that's how you teach a new generation this is how we do things because when you're a kid growing up in that kind of a community you watch it happen and then at some point it's your turn and you lend a hand um and then They're doing it frequently enough that this isn't about charity and it's not about, um, well, I I did my charity service, but I did my mission trip for the year. Don't I feel good? Um, But it's like, no, this is just what we do for each other in community. And that's something that maybe we need to recover, too, that just saying the church should take more mission trips, I don't think that solves it because – That so easily becomes the focus turns back on me on don't I feel good that I did this mission trip instead of was I actually useful in the resources and skills I could offer.
0: And I think the church has lost sight of so much of its mission work that we spend too much time in committees trying to figure out, you know, okay, what mission do we want to support? How do we want to support it? Where are we going to get the money to support it from? You know, where are we going to get the resources rather than just going out and doing it?
1: Mm hmm. And maybe this this gets at a, a bigger, bigger picture problem with church in America and the 21st century. But when we treat it as like a hobby or a bonus, additional thing I do when I have additional time, and I still sort of assume, well, my primary life is the, my nuclear family, and then there's hobbies. I have to take the kids to soccer, and I got to go to church. We treat it like um, it's it's an afterthought or of secondary importance. And again, part of what part of the, the feel I get in those early chapters of Acts was everybody was willing to share their possessions because that was their primary source of community. It was, they, they bet everything on living in this kind of a community and it wasn't that they could, well, if this doesn't go out, we'll just go to the church down the street. (laughs) There wasn't no other Mm -hmm. church down the street and it it immersed their whole lives. It wasn't just "Well, I'll give an hour Sunday morning here. And then I got to take my kids to chariot practice. It was their whole lives. Um, I, I wonder whether since I, I don't think it's likely that the three of us are going to uh, start a communitarian revolution uh, in the, in the church just with the three of us, but are there other like small steps that would, um that, that could be a part of our daily practice or our family's practice that would be helpful toward getting a glimpse of that feel of community, not in like a, you must do this or you don't go to heaven, but more like this is the fullness of what life in Christ could be like. Are, are there things that you see, beyond the produce table or the the little signs we've talked about other things that would be ways for each of us or our listeners to stretch a little bit.
0: I think maybe, and obviously after this is all, after we're out of self-isolation and, and social distancing, um, just stepping out and getting to know the folks on your street. I mean, um, so, so often I think anymore, and maybe not so much in the small towns that we live in, um, but especially in bigger cities, like you said, Steve, you know, you you don't even look at your neighbors for fear that they're going to do something or say something to you for giving them a strange look. But like um, just going over and introducing yourself to your neighbors, if you don't know them already and just striking up that conversation and just um, building community that way, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be about faith or, or church or anything. It's just getting to know those around you. I mean, I'm, I know almost all my neighbors. I've lived here for three years. Um, I've at least spoken to all of them Um, and and I'm grateful to have that community.
2: And I think for me, it's remembering that community now has a lot of different definitions. Um, You know, of course community, like we should be trying to make community with our physical neighbors, you know, those who live on our street, uh, make community with in relationships with, those in our churches, you know, those in our workplaces, et cetera. But I think if anything, this pandemic has taught me that community can also be found online. Mm -hmm. And that's going to look very different than in-person community, but that those communities are just as important. Um, You know, I've been doing weekly Bible studies on one of my church churches, Facebook pages, and it's been fascinating to see people comment and interact with that, who I used to know when I was on internship, Mm. you know, when I was a pastor, which was at this point eight years ago, like it was quite a while ago, but here we can be in, you know, kind of renew that relationship because we're both online
1: on the
0: internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had so, people you know, from home watch my sermons and even an old teacher I used to work with share them on her Facebook page. So mm-hmm.
1: for, for me, as someone who serves two congregations, one of the fun things has been to, to um, have experiences where we can do things jointly online in ways that we can't on Sundays with two different buildings in two different communities. But online, there can be everybody's faces and that sense mm-hmm. of being connected to, to each other too. Um, I, I want to, I want to hit, at least for the last thing I want to offer is, is riffing off a, a note you said, Erica, a minute ago about the, the value of getting to know neighbors, whether it's, it looks religious or not, and whether, whether it's, um, I'm going to tell you about Jesus or not but simply being in connection with neighbor is good at so many levels it's good for whatever their immediate needs are yours are it builds relationships it builds the foundation but it reminds me too of that line of Desmond Tutu's um where he says something like um Jesus didn't say to the hungry person, um, is it political or social for me to feed you? He just says, I feed you because of the hungry person, the good news is bread. Um, And that, that idea that part of what we're called to do is for our neighbor, whether the neighbor is a part of our church or not, to be attentive to what the needs of the neighbor are and to recognize that the neighbor has something to offer us as well. Regardless of whether they are church members or not, there's a mm-hmm. sense of community being valuable uh, on its own terms, and that then Christian community becomes this additional way of being community in particular ways. But we're not great at just practicing community. Period. Well said. So, so <laughs> have, have we spent enough time in our conversation today? We ready to stick a pin in th- things and uh, join next time? Yes, I think so. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and uh, join us here next time on Crazy Faith Talk.
2: See y'all. Bye.